You're watching the Sports Objective, the podcast for pirates. You're listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on the Sports Objective. Join Coach C, the USA Strength and Conditioning Hall of Famer, every Monday night to see in a variety of guests, including former players, former and current coaches, pastors, and others will discuss relevant issues in coaching today's athlete with the goal of equipping the athlete and those coaching them with the physical, mental, and spiritual armor necessary to live their best life. Here's Coach Connors. Uh, welcome to Absolute Empowerment. Uh, tonight we have a very special guest, seasoned strength and conditioning veteran, Bob Alejo. And uh, uh, Bob was most recently a senior associate AD for performance and student athlete welfare at Cal State Northridge. Uh, he has a very vast background in the profession, uh, ran the programs at Cal State Chico, UCLA, UC San Bernardino, also coached a uh, an Olympic gold medal uh, beach volleyball team. Uh, was also the director of strength and conditioning with the Oakland A's. Uh, assistant AD for strength and conditioning at NC State. And also uh, directed the sports science department for the company Powerlift. And Bob has also uh, recently been named onto the board of directors for the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And uh, Coach, uh, so glad to have you in the house to discuss some important issues, and uh, uh, we're really glad to see you. Well, man, I'm looking forward to it. It's great to see you, Coach. I mean, uh, it's in North Carolina, holds a real dear place in my heart, and, and uh, it was a shame the only time I got to meet you is when we had those early season basketball scrimmages. I could run over to the gym for a minute, and if I was lucky, I got a hold of you. But, uh, yeah. no, this is definitely an honor, and, you know, these are the kind of things that, that folks like you and I have been around a little bit should do, right? I mean, let people know what we've done, what we've seen, and, you know, no theories here, Coach, right? And no doubt. Uh, well, Bob, what we usually do on the show is uh, this is kind of like uh, uh, somewhat of the Bob Alejo story. So we want to, first of all, talk a little bit about uh, young Bob Alejo, uh, where you grew up, uh, a little bit about your of course, athletic background, and also if you have any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of testimony of faith, some things that you, you overcame uh, in being successful as a young athlete, and uh, maybe a little bit about who your influences were growing up and how important they were, and uh, we're just really interested in, in your story. Well, shoot, I'm not a I'm not a big fan about talking about myself, but I can definitely, this is good because then you get to go all the way back to the beginning, right? So I was born and raised in Sacramento, California, like my mom and dad were and, and my grandparents and everybody is still back there. Those who are continuing to, to breathe. My mom's still alive and, and uh, healthy as a horse. I tell her, you know, mom, you know, she's 86, 87 and mom, you're screwing up my inheritance. Let's go. You know, <laughs> she's in too good shape. So, of course, she laughed. She's full of the business, just like I am. So uh grew up there and then moved to the Bay Area and spent, you know, most of my childhood years in the Contra Costa County, which is, you know, just east of San Francisco and Oakland. And so, uh, you know, I was a three-sport player back then in my freshman year and then got it down to two sports for my sophomore, junior, and senior year. And, and baseball was primarily the sport that, uh, I got the most notoriety in, but ironically, uh, I really liked football. <laughs> I thought, right. you know, that's really what I wanted to do, but I just didn't have the the size and, you know, the, although I, you know, I could have went to a smaller school and probably done that, but baseball was really where I excelled. From there, I, you know, I went to uh, California State University, Chico, and, uh, went to a division two school and played baseball there, which was fantastic for me. Uh, I was out up, up the road about three odd hours uh, from north from where I live. So it was just far enough away from home to, to be on your own, but close enough if you needed to get back. And what an experience that was. I mean, I had a ton of uh, fun there, but, you know, I did pretty good. So I ended up at some point getting into the school's Hall of Fame, the inaugural baseball Hall of Fame, and then 
what they call uh, what is this? I'm looking at it right now. Legends of the Diamond. So there's been sport uh, baseball has been played there in the minor league level, and other you know, so other people have been there in town. That's more of a Chico thing. So that worked out fine and loved school. It was more of a, you talk to people that went to school there, they tell you it was an experience more than anything. It was up in the mountains. And so we had plenty of fishing and hunting going on, which was just a blast. And, um, and from there, uh, ended up getting my first job at UCLA in 1984 with John Arcee. So that was, uh, yeah, really, he really showed me the, really showed me the way. In be- before I got there, though, Jeff, I'll tell you where my inspiration really came from. Um, first of all, Chico State at the time had some tremendous physical educators. I mean, it's a it's a, a liberal arts school. A lot of teachers coming out of there, but there's also a lot of farmers. And you know, there's shoot at least you know ten guys I played with in baseball that are farming or own their own farms up there right now, ranching um, rice and corn and grain and all that. But uh, really learned a lot about physical education. It was small. Of course, back then, as you know, there was no sports science. There was no, you know, uh, strength and conditioning tract of education. And when I was a biology major looking to go into physical therapy, and as luck would have it, and I guess luck's a bad term, I don't really believe in happenstance, but uh, during the springtime, I couldn't take any biology courses because the the labs were three hours and three times a week. And, you know, I'd, I'd have missed a lot of school. So I yeah. ended up declaring a second major as physical education and then did that. So by the time I came to graduate, I needed, uh, what did I need? Two physics and a chemistry, but that would have taken a whole nother year because I couldn't, certainly wasn't going to take the physics, two physics at a time. But yeah. Then I thought to myself, like, golly, but I could graduate with a, with a, a BA and PE. So I did right away. Right away, I did that. And in the meantime, I'm looking for a place to work out because I was uh, began to competitively Olympic lift and looking yeah. for a place to work out or whatever and found this place called the Sports Medicine Center and uh, signed up, looked over to the right and saw, you know, hiring a hiring sign. So I said, what hiring for what? Well, you know, instructors and whatever. So I thought, well, man, that'd be a good way to, to earn money. I'm just out of college and places really inexpensive to live. And, Shoot, you know, when I was before I came to Chico, I worked at a Jack Lanes. Talk about <laughs> hey, let me tell you oh, something. Yeah. You, you talk about a money making machine. They were printing money in the back of that place. Golly, Jack Lane had it had it down. You know, he could have he could afford it a lot more than that onesie he used to wear. I can tell you that much. <laughs> but uh, I felt like okay, well, I can do that. I can I can teach people how to work out. I mean, that ain't yeah. no big deal. So that was kind of it and grew that position into the assistant director of the, of the place there. And, and then in 1984, I got a, I got a shot at uh, going to L.A., walking my resume. Nobody does this anymore. Walking my resume into the UCLA weight room and saying, hi, I'm Bob Vallejo. Here's my resume if you have an opening. John said, I, you know, well, I don't. But they've talked to me a lot about having an assistant. But, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. So I leave. You know, two or three weeks later, I get a phone call out, you know, for folks at home who, who don't look like me and you with a little gray coming out. No cell phones, no caller ID, no computer, no nothing. Phone rings. Hello. You know, hey, this is John Arce at UCLA. It looks like I've been given an assistance position. And it's uh, $10,000 for a nine month uh, appointment. I said, I'll take it. Off I went, like most of us, you know. Barely making a dollar, but loving every second of it, right? Yeah. So that that began. I mean, that was really, you know, the beginning of a of the 10-year stay at UCLA and the beginning of the career. Just before I decided to drop that resume off, I, I'd interviewed it at, at, at uh oh, this will take you back. I interviewed with Joe Cap at Cal when he had that job because it was only a couple hours away. So I knew a guy who knew a guy, got in there, and well, that was a that was a hell of a deal. But um we had a guy by the name of Jeff Stover, who was a 70-foot shot putter back in the in the early 80s. And uh, he had played high school football up out of Chico at a place called Willows. The graduating class was probably 50. <laughs> I mean, it was really small up there up north. And uh, 
he was going to throw again in the Masters. There's a couple other throws in there that were older where they're still throwing. And uh, somehow, I don't know how it happened, but the 49ers got a hold of who he was. He was, you know, he was 275, strong as hell, lean. I mean, just you couldn't imagine. Well, as the story goes, they 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 came up there to Chico, which wasn't, you know, far from the, the central, the center of California. They, they, he ran a 40 at about four or five, six, five, six, six, 275. Stopped the tryout signed him and then continued to try out. <laughs> so they, anyway, so he goes to camp in Rockland, which is only an hour and a half away from Chico. So we go down to Rockland and who would be the strength coach of the 49ers during that time was Albert Meal. Now I didn't know anything about Albert Meal. I mean, I'd heard about him, but again, you know, it wasn't on the internet because there was no internet. So you bought a book or you heard from somebody, right? So uh, I go watch Albert Meal for a couple of days. Well, I remember distinctly driving home in the car with the guys and I ended up saying like, because I was coaching a little bit, I coached the football team and, you know, trying to feel myself out. I also coached baseball, found out that really wasn't going to happen for me. But uh, I remember driving home and thinking to myself, and and I said it out loud too, if I can look and feel like that every day at work, I want to do that. And that was the beginning. I thank Al. I thank Al for that all the time. Every time I see him. Yeah. And so that started out. Spent ten years at UCLA, nineteen ninety three. I went to the Oakland A's for oh, ten, almost ten, I think. And um, was part of the Moneyball era, where you know we we started out and we were horrible. We almost lost a hundred games twice. And if you looked at our record as it got into the late nineties and early two thousands. It just, we won more and won more and won more and got really good. And, um, really set the record for baseball in the modern era in the second half. And I don't think anybody's had a second half like that since we did that then or before. So they made a movie out of that. And I'm proud of that and proud of what we did. And of course that too was Billy Bean. And if anybody watches this and knows about data and metrics and all that, he was the one who started all that. So I was there watching the whole big data era explode under what, what they used. Um, and then from there, I I, uh, I went with uh, Jason Giambi to the Yankees for about four years and decided I wanted to do my own thing. So I became, you know, his personal coach up there and uh, wrote a book and got a website and I was, you know, in the middle of, well, I was in the, uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I was single. Couldn't have had a, a more fun time. I'm still recovering from that. That was 2000, 2002 to 2005. Still tired from all that. Uh, it was fun, though. It was good. And then um, that's when I took my job at, I think you said San Bernardino, but that would be Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. Okay. And uh, Went there for four years. Then Billy Bean called me back, said, we want, I want you to come back here and fix this thing. We're not doing very well. So I came back for about uh, in the third year of my, my three-year deal. Uh, NC State popped up on the radar. and I got offered assistant, the director of everything, including football, and an assistant athletic director title. And I thought that would be good for the future. So I, I took that. I was there for about six years. And, yeah. And I ended up here at uh, – at Northridge is a senior associate athletic director for performance and student student athlete welfare, which you know I've been stumping for for a long time. I mean, I think that we can talk about this later, but you know the, the supervision and oversight of strength conditioning, athletic training, and all that stuff is just awful at the college level. I mean, they yeah. don't come in and watch. I don't know about you, but the guys that that were my oversight over me, I never saw me work one day. It, it not nothing that was other than coming in and getting coffee out of my room because I had the coffee maker. But they, they were watching. They didn't sit around and see what we did and how we did it. And yet they're still <laughs> filling out employee evaluations and yeah. for an official institutional document, sight unseen. Ridiculous. Well, I, I was glad to be able to do that. Mike Izzy, the guy, one of the first guys I met on campus in, at UCLA in 1984, who just finished up as a decathlete, uh, became the AD. And he said, come on, let's do this. And uh, he decided to go another route. Uh, last June and the new AD came in and uh, thought that uh, there was three senior positions that he was going to change and reorganize. And sadly, 
it, it wasn't one of those things, Jeff, where, you know, he's going to bring in his own people. He, he dissolved my position. Yeah. So now, so now, like every other place, the person that has three teams and Title IX and two events is also going to cover that whole performance unit, which is to say they won't do anything. Yeah. They, they won't do a damn thing. So I got to see 2008. I was lucky to, to run into Todd uh, Rogers and Phil Dowhauser, and they asked me to coach them. And then they uh, uh, put me on the roster. So I was an official uh, team member at that point. I don't think there's been a straight coach that's ever been an official U.S. Olympic team member, but I was there twice. So I also went with them in London where we weren't as lucky, but we ended up bringing home the gold in Beijing. That's a whole different experience, man. That's uh, the way I, the way I explain it is, you know, it's one thing to win a national championship, but when you win the world, that's a whole different deal. So that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. And, you know, I, uh, all in all, just like you, brother, same thing. My intent is to help people get better and help them any way I can to achieve their dreams. You know, when you want to be the, the greatest volleyball player or golfer or football player ever lived, or you just want to have a great experience and go hard and, uh, I can do that for you too. So, I mean, that's really been, that's really been our mission, right? Oh, no doubt. No, yeah. no doubt. Now you played catcher, right? Yep. I did. Okay. Yeah. Undersized. The, uh, <laughs> Just a little my, dude. My father and I played, uh, you know, we played at the same university. I played football. He played football, baseball, but my father was a catcher and he, uh, he signed a little deal with the Pirates with some farm league, but they sent him some some god awful city. And I, I don't even know where it was, but he ended up coming back home. But uh, but yeah, my dad must have caught like a gazillion games. I mean, I was five years old, still watching him catch. You know, so wow, I, that's funny. I I was able to watch my dad play too. They in Sacramento, yeah. they don't have it anymore, but they used to have the Mexican American League. Yeah, you know the, the valley there is you know rife with you know, Spanish speaking people, let alone Mexicans who work in the fields, you know, but, but I used to watch my uncles and, and my godfather play and those games were, I remember watching them play thinking, wow, that's cool. You know I mean? It was yeah. just like anything else ever since. And, and now when I look back, the environment was like a big league game. I mean, he, these cats were playing hard, man. They were messing around because yeah. they were going to see each other in town, you know, so they're, they wanted to carry that around. So I, that was fun for me to be able to watch. I, I vividly remember that too. And, uh, Although sometimes I forget until, you know, you bring up something like that. I'm like, damn, I do remember yeah. sitting next to my mom <laughs> watching that. Like, wow, what's going on here? You know. Well, let's go back a few decades and, uh, you know, just tell me a little bit about the primary tenets of your program. And, uh, you know, I, I am interested in, in you know, because it's been a while uh, when you were with the, with the A's to, you know, kind of what you were doing with them also, you know, uh, were you incorporating any of the Olympic lifts were with them at that time? You know, uh, give me a little insight there. All right. Well, I, I mean, look, my, I guess if you were to say, you know, what, what did I gravitate to, you know, the most, if I was to pick something out, it, it would be the Olympic lifts for sure. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think you quickly understand that you just want to, as a strength and conditioning coach, what you're trying to do is is, prescri is prescribe training for an athlete in terms of what they need. So yeah. it's not so much the sport as what do you need, uh, and and so that I think that's that's been my key. One of the things that I kind of pride myself in is I'm not an Olympic lifting guy or a powerlifting guy or a bodybuilding guy or a you know whatever the hell you want to call it. You know, I'm not that I'm the guy to get you better. Whatever that is, that's what I do. It just so happens that somebody might like me and you got a pretty damn big toolbox because we've been doing this a long time. Right. So yeah. we can, we, sometimes we end up doing stuff we haven't done for years, but you know, we've done it and it worked and gee, it would work for this woman or this man right here. Let's just do that and, and see how we get there. So, you know, I, like I said, I got that call to go to baseball and, uh, you know, frankly, I mean, maybe this would be some sort of advice for younger coaches who, who come in. I I literally just watched, you know, because I, I yeah. think you need to watch to get an historical perspective of what these people have done. And, you know, you got to realize that, that these are big leaguers, right? So they're they're the CEO of themselves. You know, they're 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 their own company making a lot of money. 
And so you, know, you got to, you have to think about it in those terms at the same time. Um, and, you know, people say, Hey, what do you like better? And, and I, I didn't, I didn't like anything better. It just so happened I played baseball. That worked out for me, but um, I liked them both. I mean, I like the profession. It just so happens that, yeah. you know, people say, Oh, you're a baseball guy. No, I'm a strength coach that did baseball. I'm, like you, I've done them all. Right. So it's no, right. it's no big deal. At the same time, I uh, I say, but there is a difference. And the difference is, one, you're dealing with adults, and the other one, you're dealing with kids. Now, that's a difference, right? Yeah. There's certainly some things and behavior that you would perhaps try to use to motivate or persuade kids that you just can't do with grownups, and vice versa, right? You know, I mean, so... That was different. So I, I just basically watched. And sooner or later, you know, they were asking me for help. You know, now these guys weren't doing, you know, crazy stuff. But keep in mind, 1993, I was the first strength coach in Oakland A's history. And not every team in the big leagues in 93 had a strength coach. And there were some strength coaches that only worked 81 times a year. That means they only worked home games, didn't travel, didn't – but there was, you know, so – you know, it was really, it was really the vision of Sandy Alderson, who was the GM and president at the time, and eventually became the vice president of baseball, and and uh, did the same job with the Padres and the Mets. To be able to say, hey, we need to get, and, and this is what they told me. We all sat down, and Sandy said that they just had kind of an injury plagued year, and hadn't won the World Series since '89, hadn't even been in the playoffs for a few years, and said we need to get somebody who's a professional at this. You know, I know we're doing a good job lifting. Dave McKay yeah. was the guy kind of handling it. He was the first Bay coach. He's still the Bay Leagues coaching. Basically, we got to get somebody like that. And so uh, I was doing some work with the Lakers, Gary Beatty, uh, through Gary Beatty, trying to help him out and get some, you know, get some of their guys in good shape. And um, Barry Weinberg, the Oakland A's trader, called him and said, hey, do you got anybody? And any strength coach said, no, we don't have a strength coach. We have a guy who's helping us out who's – works with UCLA basketball and runs all those sports. So again, another kind of historical measure, I'm pretty sure that UCLA was the first school that split the uh, Olympic sports in football. So when John and I, when I was his assistant, they wanted to keep me there and they said, here's what we'll do. We'll give John football and then you can have the rest of the sports and be the administrator of the room. So you, you know, you're no longer an assistant. So Gary was saying, you know, he said, we got a guy that works with uh, a couple of our players and seems to be all right. So Barry called me and asked me to come out there. So I went. And I think a big part of my success, and I think I just said something on um, on LinkedIn about this. You know, DAs not only let me do my job, Jeff, they helped me do my job. So, you know, everybody, right. everybody claims about autonomy. Oh, let me do my thing. And they did. But at the same time, they also help me do my thing. And that doesn't happen very often. So I, I you know, somebody asked me today. Yeah. Huh? No, it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> no, hell no. So what what happened was the way I explained it was Barry Weinberg is a perfect example. You know, so now I'm with adults. I'm in the big leagues. I mean, there's a culture there, just like the NFL, just like the NBA. There's a certain way you you act within those sports. Every sport's got its personality and culture. Right. <clears throat> Barry Weinberg was a guy that that uh, that I say was in those jungle movies that you and I used to watch as kids that would walk ahead and cut the vines down with a machete so we could walk. That's what he did for me. Yeah. So when when people say, you know, hey, what 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 would you do differently, you know, if you ever went back to the A's and and what what uh, do you remember failing and what did you do? And I, and I I thought for a second honestly, and I didn't I didn't want to sound arrogant, but I said. I wouldn't do anything different and I didn't make any mistakes. And the reason why I didn't is they didn't allow me to, I mean, I, I don't know anywhere. So I'm trying to pay it forward like that. When somebody says to me, coach, I screwed up. I always say, hey, don't worry about that. Let, let me take that. We'll, we'll fix that. And, you know, I didn't break anybody's leg. Nobody died. Let's just, you know, you, 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 whatever. Right. And so that's what they did for me. And so not only was that great, the whole staff embraced me. And that was because of Tony LaRusso. Uh -huh. Tony LaRusso, the first time, first time we met and, 
And, uh, you know, he said, hey, uh, welcome to the ball club. You know, we were at Fan Fest, right? You have every year the team goes out and has a big thing, like in January, get everything going in the city and everywhere in the big league. And I met him. That's how I met him. He was signing autographs. He was, hey, man, nice to meet you. And, you know, you're going to really help us out, I think. Oh, yes, sir. You know, okay, good. Um, but what he did was he told everybody and even told me, look, you're a pro or you wouldn't be here. So just – I don't usually say anything unless there's something going on. So unless you hear from me, otherwise, just do your thing. That was it. Right. Your Hall of Famer saying, go do it. You know, I mean, it's just phenomenal. And and the PS to that story, too, when I was with the A's, it, I know it sounds funny, but I'm going to tell you. When I was with the A's, I never had one person from the president, owner, all the way down to the hitting coach tell me, no, we can't do that. Or – that's the wrong thing to do. Not once, not once. Yeah. Did whatever I wanted to, how I wanted, and you know that's the way it should be. And if you know if you fail, then you need to account for that. And if that means you lose your job, this is the way it goes. Yeah. So um, that's kind of what I did there. Now, wh- what did I do? What did I bring there? Well, first thing I didn't bring was the ability to train athletes on the day that they play. Uh, you and I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you did that there, but. But with, we, play, we play every day, right? Play about 210 games in – let me think about figure this out. No, let's just make that 180 games in 200 days, including spring training. So I'd never had anybody lift weights on the day that they played. And, uh, you know, some guys like to lift before because it gets them hyped up and nervous system going. Or some guys want to save all that, play the game, and lift after. So I had to acquiesce to those – preferences and figure out what do I do the one thing I came up with was volume right these all they do all every day is they play catch they run they throw they field they swing every day is the same thing and that's a lot of work and then they're out there American League three hours playing now you know the commissioner is now trying to speed that up but anyway they're out there all day so last thing they want to do at you know 10 o'clock at night after being out there for three hours is come in and live for an hour so a couple of things I did. One, I decided we're going to lift heavy and we're going to drop the reps to five and under. And we're going to go as heavy as we can. So I took two months at threes, two months at twos, and the last two months at ones. Give me your best one, whatever it is. Uh, and then I said, you know, we have programs from two to six times a week, however you want to do it. So, for instance, if somebody said two is good enough for me, here's my schedule. You want to put some things in there? Okay. But if you're a guy that would really want to lift, it just it just wasn't practical after the game. So we I just divided it up into back, chest, arms, legs. Sometimes I divide legs into anterior, posterior, um, you know, and said we'll just do one body part. So say if it was chest day, it was the guy who picked that sort of workout. We come in and do flat bench and incline out the door. Be done in eight nine minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Get warm, go hard, go home. <laughs> and uh, we may live in that way. And that was pitchers, too. We were squatting heavy. We were doing everything like that. And, you know, you realize that that was the same thing you and I had already done. It was just under different conditions, right? Like we wouldn't be doing all kinds of reps in season, doing eights and tens and twelves and all that. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. And uh, you certainly wouldn't be doing that if you were going to go out and play after that. So I just thought, well, we're just going to reduce this thing down to nothing, turn it from uh, one RMs into just max efforts, which at the end of the year, you might be getting one hard rep, but it may be only 85 to 90% of your best, but that's all you got six months later, right? But it's the full effort I like because ain't nobody pulling a hamstring at 80%. (laughs) They're going as hard as they can, tired or not, and that's when problems happen. So that's really – that's really what I changed. And then I, you know, when I went to that and then I came out of that back into college, I just brought that with me and thought, you know, this is a great idea. It really worked. And I know it worked because if there's anybody that would have, that it would have resulted um, adversely, it would have been baseball because they were playing every day and nothing happened. Nothing, nothing. The only thing that happened was good. We reduced our injuries and guys kept playing. They were available. Well, it's interesting to me. I think, you know, it seems like they spend a good 20, 30 minutes on shoulder prehab now and shoulder mobility and, uh, of course, uh, rotary torso work. And, 
core strengthening and, and then, and then of course, some degree of work for the primary muscle groups. But uh, uh, that's kind of what I see in a nutshell for baseball these days. Uh, uh, but uh, I've had some baseball guys tell me, you know, coming from teams saying they ought to just, you know, forget the weight program, just hire a masseuse. Because <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. it really ain't doing anything. And then, right. you know, that's a whole different story, right? I mean, look at, listen to this. So you got all this technology. You got your biomechanist, your sports science guy, your strength coach, your massage therapist. You got all this technology, all these metrics. And the injury rate hasn't changed a bit. Yeah. So you tell me what's wrong with that. I mean, the, the machine, it's not the machine's fault. You know, you just turn it on. It tells you these numbers. It's the practitioner. There's no doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, it's definitely got it got worse, you know. So yeah, like how that happen? Out there, a lot of injuries. Yeah, you got you got machines now that can tell the future, damn near, and then you can't you can't get that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm gonna tell you something. If I ever get back into baseball, I'm gonna fix it all by myself. You mark it down at whatever time it is right now. I said, <laughs> I hear you. Well, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about. Uh, I guess you could say the younger people, you know, the collegiate athletes, uh, you know, what, what character traits did you feel were important? And, uh, you know, regarding those traits, you know, how did you feel like you were impactful in, let's say, developing the younger athletes, uh, maybe in some programs at NC State or, you know, uh, it's always been interesting to me is to look at some of the things, of course, you know, we can look at a lot of different character traits, but to me, it all came down to maybe two or three things for, for a lot of these athletes to be successful. What, what are your feelings there? I'd say that we, we were a lot more impactful in the eighties than we are now. I mean, yeah. I, I pretty- yeah. I just, I feel like, I mean, I still get text messages, emails, phone calls from, from kids I coached at UCLA. I mean, a lot of them have been now lifelong friends. You know, I was, I was coaching their kids, you know, at, at some point they'd say, Hey, my daughter's doing this or my son's doing that coach. I helped me out. I just, uh, I just received a, a, a LinkedIn message from James Washington. It was a Super Bowl MVP for the Cowboys one year. He was our our safety. He said, Coach, I need somebody that cares about my best interest. I need to get healthy again. I mean, yeah. I haven't talked to him in 30 years. You know, I mean, I've seen him. We've seen each other on Facebook. So I, I know in my case that I was – I think the way you talk about impactful is you say you're, you're a bigger part of their life. You know, that that's why I really right. have told kids, you know, like if that's what you want to do, if that's how you want to be – thought of. And that's how I think that I did my best job. I was able to, to become more than a a strength coach. I was a confidant and a friend, you know, at at whatever level, you know, a 30 year old could be to an 18 year old, you know, I mean, they, they, they trusted me. Um, I tell them, you know, I I don't think college is the place, go to high school where you can start influencing right away. I mean, to, to the degree that somebody asked me the other day, you know, what's the basis of your program, you know, give me, give me a couple of things that, that you um, that you can point to, yeah. And yeah. I remember the last time somebody asked me that, I said, "Well, we number one, you can start with please and thank you." You know, I, I just that's the way I look at it, right? I mean, I just see that that's a that's a big deal to me because you don't see it as much. And now, look, things have changed, and you know, you can talk about kids communicating or not. But but when we were kids, you, you had to talk. There was no other way to do it. Right. You had to look at somebody and, and talk to them. And that's sometimes that's not easy, but you do it and you grow and you stretch and you learn. And But now they don't have to talk. They can just text. So they've really lost the art of communication. And I'm, I'm not telling you anything new. I mean, you can just ask the scientists that they'll tell you. The social scientists will tell you that's a big part of how these kids have grown up. Good, bad or indifferent. That, that's the thing. And so you, you become a little bit. Um, you become a little bit more of a figure than you are a human, you know, almost, you know, so I, I just, I think that's, that's the piece. Uh, 
But what I have found, and I've been lucky to be around, you know, those 10 years at UCLA, I mean, holy cow, Jeff. You know, uh, Jackie Joyner, Troy Aikman, Kobe Jones, those kids I all coached, you know. Yeah. One thing about them is uh, Reggie Miller, you know, these guys. I mean, one thing about them is is they were passionate and committed, right? I mean, there's, there's no other way to say it. Right. And I think we've all seen that videotape of, of, uh, of Nick Saban saying, you know, I think people think there's lots of ways to be great, and there really isn't. And the answer to that is there really isn't. <laughs> there's just, right. you know, you got to – there's only a few things that you, that you need to do, and if you don't do them, then it is what it is, and you're not going to make it. And uh, those guys, they – they busted their butts, man. They did a great job, and they were intent. They did. They were great in school. Um, for the, I remember back in those days. Now there was no rules, right, coach? I mean, these guys were, if they weren't in class, they were watching film and they were working out. They didn't have any twenty hours. I mean, hell, these guys reached twenty hours by Wednesday, coach. You know that. <laughs> so, so, uh, but that's one thing they were in. in you know, and again, looking back they were good. They were good people, but they're still good people. They have good families. You never hear anything about them. You know I mean? It's just one of those things. They just, you know, be a good person. That's a good start. Yeah. So that's, that's what I found. I mean, I, I, you know, again, their, their passion for the sport has to be there. You're just not going to make it in that sport. Um, And so that being one of the traits that I think you're automatically committed to just outworking everybody. If you're that passionate, you're, you're just, you know, you're, you're like, you're like me, you know, I come home from baseball practice. I'm throwing the tennis ball against the garage and fielding it, you know, yeah. or I'm throwing it against the curb. I'm throwing it up and hitting it and running. Well, I didn't go hit it too far, but <laughs> running a hundred feet and going to pick it up and hit it again. You know, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what you do. Um, that's what I found with, with these kids. Now, I think some of these kids are still driven and committed. But one, you know, one of the things that, that I, I find with the recent generations, and, and, I, and I was told this by one of the vice presidents at Santa Barbara in 2006 or seven, whatever, like he was telling me that he's got moms and dads calling his office saying, hey, is there any way you can take my, my son or my daughter through registration? They're just having a hard time. Yeah. What? And he ended up saying, no. And, and, and why is he, he ended up saying like, well, why is that? And he wrote, he wrote like a paper on it. And, and I got to find it. You make, you make me think about that. He said, here's a problem. Uh, some of these kids aren't even allowed to fall down. Yeah. Like somebody's there to watch them. But even worse than that, uh, when they do fall down, they're not even allowed to get up on their own. Here, let me help you. Oh, God. Oh, gosh. You know, like, be careful. And I don't know about you, but you know, you better get up. <laughs> I mean, there ain't nobody helping you. I mean, yeah, because our parents didn't do that. I mean, so I think that's a that's a missed skill, and and we see that these kids are flummoxed with the smallest of problems. Granted, there's no denying that the science says you know there's more stressors now than ever before, and and I could see that. There's more distractions for sure with the technology. Um, still, you know, I'd like to think that while my sons play video games and all that, and they leave their stuff laying around the house or they don't clean their dishes, I'm not cleaning them. Yeah. I'm right there. Come well, on, clean them. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how much we can say about parasympathetic breathing. And, you know, I mean, it's uh, okay. You learn how to do that and it helps you. Uh, Okay, so what else? Can we do? What else can we do now to get into a parasympathetic state? You know, I'm, I take a lot of things from uh, you know the Marine Corps Warfighting Skills Manual. I really have a lot of parallels between athletics and the military, and I, you know, I wrote, okay. a little, wrote a little book about that for my own enjoyment. But uh, you know, talking about that human dimension is that's where I wanted to focus a lot of my efforts in developing athletes. Is that the chief incalculable being the human will. 
and really understanding and believing that. And then, you know, what are the commonalities and shortfalls of the collegiate football player, for instance, relative to character, consistency, and peculiarities? Hmm. So when you look at those three things, which is something that I faced every year, you know, with, okay, out of this hundred guys, I'm going to have 10% that are going to be troubled individuals. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but at the same time, I could always count on that. And one of the reasons I started the podcast, of course, is because I saw so many people go by the wayside and not graduate, you know, not make it to their senior year, not, you know, uh, not, not being able to quit smoking marijuana or not, you know, not being able to quit drinking alcohol and get into some kind of trouble. And I mean, that's, uh, I, I would like to think that we can save more people. Um, but I don't know if it's going to come through parasympathetic breathing. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think that, uh, that we have to become proactive, maybe as old coaches and, and find a way to uh, influence some of the younger people to, hey, uh, maybe some of these things that we did way back when weren't that bad, you know. So I yeah, think you can improve toughness. Some people don't. But uh, I have always believed that. But I'm from Western Pennsylvania. And, you know, Western Pennsylvania was a pretty rough place when it came to uh, competitive athletics. Right, right. But you make some great points. I, I mean, uh, listen, you're not wrong. Um, I, I just, you know, there, there is a, coming from a liberal arts school, there's, a, there's teaching strategies, right, that, that have been recognized one of them was guided discovery. Yeah. I, I, like, I like that a lot. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm going to kind of infer what should be done, you know, so I'm not going to do it for you, though. And that, I think that's, that's the piece that we're missing, you know. And then when you have your – I mean, I just, you know, I just shudder at some of these things. You know, now, you know, parents and kids, they don't, they don't go to the coach. They go right to the president of the school. I can't tell you how many times we've been called in. Hey, so, you get an email from a, a a a mom, yeah, and from the president's office. Can you guys handle this, please? I mean, at first you just kind of like, oh my goodness, you know, that's the last thing I want the president. But well, it ain't it ain't abnormal, you know. And, and when you have that, you know, again, kids are great minds. They're gonna they're going to kind of echo the sentiments of their parents, right? A little bit. So, you know, if a child sees that, thinks that's, well, I don't, you know, I just need to jump over everybody until somebody tells me yes. You know, that that's, that's not life. Yeah. That's not how it really happens. And, and so I'm, we're really doing them a disservice. Everybody thinks, Oh, you know, this is great. We're helping them out. No, you're not. That's not helpful at all. In fact, I think, I think some child psychologists will tell you it's uh, one of the more insidious um, abuses of, children right. is doing everything for them. Give them everything, help them up, give them all, you know, let them the way they talk, the way they walk, what clothes they wear. And all. I mean, I, they need guidance, you know, and I, I'm glad my, you know, I mean, look, I think there's probably some things that I know my parents did that, you know, if somebody found out they might be in trouble now. Right. But I mean, I think a lot of folks end up, you know, uh, living by the, by the, uh, the ruler or whatever was available <laughs> to, to hit you in the behind, let you know that, Hey, you need to kind of go this way and not that way. But uh, I, I think you're totally right. I mean, I, that's, that was very articulate how you, how you define that out and what you said. And I, I think if we just can all imagine, you know, making it enable these kids to critically think. So if I'm, if I'm in a, in a situation where I'm saying, oh, here's what I want you guys to do. Now, I, I know I'm a good speaker. I know I speak clear and without ambiguity. So when I say, here's what I want to do, give me five of those, give you 30 seconds rest, whatever like that, I right, get ready. And somebody goes, wait a minute, can you say that again? I say, no, that's the guy next to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if that's my little contribution, then good for me. 
Anyway. Well, I wanted to mention also that you had, uh, I think you had a sports science position with Powerlift. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, what kind of, um, did, I mean, did, did you see any progress there while you were there with, uh, you know, equipment or program design that was significant? Not really. So here's here's how that happened, Jeff. Uh, and for all those folks out there who don't know it, Jeff Connor with yeah. an E. Jeff Connor with an E owns Powerlift. Right. So, you know, I, there's been a couple of times where I know I've called you and you're like, wrong Jeff. Oh, God darn it. Sorry. Yeah, they, they sent me his bar bill one time and I did not want that bill. I guess. Oh, man. Was, that's what, that's something bill. you don't want. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> Oh man, that's that's a funny story. I'm gonna tell that. I'm, I'm gonna steal it from you. Yeah. Um, anyway, so when when uh, I was tied to ACC basketball at NC State, I mean that's that's where my bread was getting butter, even though I'd, I ran the whole department. And so when that coach was fired, um, I had about three months left of my. I had a contract, so you know they they fired them, but I was still going through the rest of the year. Yeah. And so you know I was out of a job for a little bit. And I thought, what, what am I gonna do next? And so this was 2016, 17. And uh, so I called around. So, you know, I mean, like we would do, we called some equipment companies, some athletic businesses and, you know, private businesses and all those things. And, you know, uh, Jeff Connor, I, you know, my whole room was power lift, except for I had a few machines that I bought from Tommy Profit at Hammer Strength. Right. And uh, who I was really good friends with, and and as the story goes, I called him first, and and said, "Hey, Tommy, I'm looking for a spot." Uh, he said, "Man, we just had a big restructure here. We let about forty guys go. You know, Bobby, I don't have anything. You know." I said, "Okay." I said, "Well, I'm just going to tell you. You know, I'm going to call Jeff Connor and, and ask him the same thing. I just don't. I just want you to know that, so you don't get upset." He's like, "No, no, you should go ahead and be good for you." So I called Jeff. Basically, I told him, I said, you know, I'm not interested in selling. You know, I'm not, I, I don't feel comfortable, at least at that time, I don't feel comfortable asking my friends to buy stuff from me. I just, I just don't feel comfortable. Now, what I can do is ask, is act as the conduit between you and the strength coach. I know you guys have, you know, I mean, you know how powerlift is one of the top three for sure. You know, a lot of people, but, uh, you know, when you got new customers and, you know, I'll be kind of that interpreter and go between, you know, I, I speak that, but, Sports yeah. science was starting to grow in 2016. I said, why don't you make me a sports science coordinator? I'll form a group of guys and, and women that are called the uh, Powerlift Sports Science Educational Board. And so that'll be a service to your customers. So you could say, uh, hey, Jeff, you know, at ECU, you bought this equipment, you, you, know, you paid whatever it is. You also have access to the, to the best scientists in this country and maybe in the world, you know, so like Andy Fry would be a guy that, yeah. you, you know, if you have any questions yeah. about exercise physiology, give Andy Fry a call. It's free of charge. It's part of the whole deal. So I put that together with those guys and end up kind of having a thing on that, uh, uh, that magazine simply faster that I end up putting up a sports or a, I'm sorry, a power lift tab on uh, simply faster. And we did a little bit. I mean, it was tough, you know, because, you know, granted, Jeff was having a hard time figuring out how the return on investment was right there because really you can't really calculate that. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years. It was good. I mean, I really liked it. I liked traveling around, like staying in the business, got to see all my friends and 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 got to get, you know, 10, 10 really good scientists on board that were going to write articles for us. And they did. And um but they, they did have, Jeff, a laser. Did you ever see their laser? I did not. So they had a laser that was probably six and a half feet tall. And it was on a post. And then it came out. There was a readout right here. It had watts and velocity and load and everything on it. And the laser was in, in here. So when you lifted, the, the weight would go, you know, the, the laser would pick up the weight going up and down problem was that it also picked up everything else so you had to you had to you know so like if you so the lasers were the lasers were facing out this way you're on the facing me i'm on the platform facing it and the 
So the laser was here and then the board was there where you could see it. So I like the immediate feedback, right? You can look at it right away. Some of these things you got to wait for a second or so. It wouldn't have to do yeah. that list. Just lift it, boom, lift it, boom, lift it, boom. But then if you walk by it, you know, it might say, you know, power output of, you know, one million or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, God damn it. Hey, don't get, get out of my way. I'm getting my lift on. And so uh, he ended up giving me 10 of those. I liked them, but they weren't going to make any more. He just felt like it. You know, I mean, he's a good businessman, so he knew that right. there wasn't anything really in for it for him. But I'm still, you know, as you look around, think about it. There's not a lot of equipment companies that sell to strength and conditioning coaches yeah, with veteran strength and conditioning coaches on their staff. I think it seems it seems funny to me. Yeah. But yeah. What I when I was at Carolina, I invented a, a plate-loaded hip flexor machine that Stoney Albert helped me with uh, – put a prototype together and it would hook into the rack and you had a pad and you could plate load it and do hip flexion. Really? And yeah. So What'd you that, do with it? Well, that was my only invention. And, uh, yeah, that was it. We, it just, you know, I, I wasn't going to try to spend a bunch of money and get a patent and all that kind of stuff, but, gotcha. I, and it was pretty heavy, you know, we would have had to try to make it lighter, uh, because you had to pick it up and stick it into the rack. But, uh, but nobody was doing anything for hip flexion. And I was like, right. well, you know, you have the, that little, uh, four way hip machine. Yeah. Yep. You could rotate around. Uh, but I wanted to make it something plate loaded. That was just for flexion that you, you could fit into the rack. So, uh, mm. that was my little brainstorm. <laughs> well, that's, that's one more thing that you built than I did. I haven't, I didn't have any inventions. Shoot, I stole them. That's cool. That's well, really cool. You know, when I first got into, when I first even learned about strength training, uh, uh, one of my dad's assistant coaches that played way back for for West Virginia, with he played for Pappy Lewis. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. But uh, you know, he took me to one of the first. There was a chiropractor. He's. I'm going to take you to this special place today. You're not going to believe it. He took me in there, and there was a full line of Nautilus in there. And, really? Uh, oh, yeah. And so uh, one of the per people took me through the machines. I don't know. I was about in ninth grade or something. And, of course, I got sick. I, you know, I didn't throw up. But, you know, I was like, whoa, man. You know, that that was like the first right. time I ever lifted weights. Oh, geez. And they just so, uh, they buried you. <laughs> yeah. So that was, uh, you know, my introduction to strength training. And then, of course, I had I had with uh, – Actually, in Tennessee, I, I managed a Nautilus uh, gym, but I also had a powerlifting team at that time as well. I was powerlifting. Okay. Uh, but we would go through that Nautilus every Saturday, me and a couple guys, and, you know, try to kill each other, of course, and all that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> every body part and, and uh, you know, throw oh, up and do force reps and negative only in the whole nine yards. And then, of course, you know, I, I visited the land once or twice and got into that whole thing with variable resistance. Oh, yeah. Concept and, you know, and then uh, so I had, you know, I like kind of like the combination of both. But then, uh, you know, over time, you couldn't even find a knot. I'd like to know if there's a Nautilus machine anywhere today. You know, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, like the like the old ones. I mean, there may be a couple of the the second or third generation ones that were a little more modern. Right. But um, yeah, we had that's what we had in the sports medicine center in eighty, whatever you know, two or three when I first started. There. They had a full line. I don't yeah. know if they had two of everything. They didn't have two, but they had one of everything. So they had the giant, you know, the giant leg press that takes up about two rooms. <laughs> yeah. You know? The combo leg press and the combo chest machine, like holy cow! Oh yeah, yeah I mean, listen, it's resistant, man. Dudes were getting big and strong on it. That's all I know. Well, those guys, you know, the guys at Penn State, of course, they hung their hat on it. Right. Michigan for many years, uh, you I, know. I mean, there were several programs throughout the country. I mean, I I used to get a kick out of listening to Ken Manny, you know, uh, defend that program at a conference and you know get into arguments with people, the free weight people. <laughs> oh man, I mean, those, man, those guys were fervent, man. But oh, yeah. you know what's funny? Yeah. Is that as time went on, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I hadn't really checked with a lot of those places. Tim Manny and I are really close friends now, but 
they they uh they start having hybrid programs. They start squatting and cleaning and everything. Yeah. Now they still kind of stayed with the the machine sort of thought of you know the failure and force reps and all that. But you know it's quicker. But if you look at yeah. Dan Riley, you know he did that at the skins for so long. Yeah. But you and I would both would both agree. Uh, yeah. That program ain't easy. <laughs> well, no, and, and when Chet Furman left Penn State, I went and interviewed up there with Paterno. And, but, you know, I walked through the room, and I was like, you couldn't even move because there were so many machines. There weren't any free weights. And I was like, Coach, I'd like to lie to you and tell you I'm a machine guy, but I'm not, you know. So, but, you know wow, so, so it was that many machines, huh? Oh, yeah, it was stacked, you know, wall to wall. Wow, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if I even saw a barbell. There may have been some somewhere, but I didn't see them. But uh, but anyway, that was an interesting experience. But we got about uh, six or seven more minutes. And I just wanted to get. To, I wanted to ask you this uh, before we close. You know, uh, looking at the last position that you had uh, mm-hmm. and your title and so forth. Um, uh, did you have more time to invest into the, like the mental and uh, physical health of the athletes and uh you know i had uh pat ivy on last week and we talked a whole lot about restoration and i visited ohio state recently and saw their force plates and you know uh, all the things that they're doing for restoration uh you know so you know the float tanks and all that kind of stuff uh so you know Things have definitely moved in that direction. Everybody wearing an aura ring to make sure they're cognizant of sleep and sleep variability. And uh, so, you know, how did you uh, kind of transition into that position and w- what did you focus on there? Well, uh, so it wasn't too long after I got on. I mean, I'm not saying it was weeks, but it was a few months, and then COVID hit. Yeah. So what really happened was uh, an opportunity to do something that I thought I might not have done if if I wasn't called on to make some difficult decisions, right? So, yeah. you know, I became the COVID coordinator, and so I was the, the you know, the department uh, coordinator and liaison to the president's office. So I ended up being on all those LA County Department of Public Health private calls and and all the way through, you know, if you, if you remember, Los Angeles was really kind of the Wuhan of North America, right? I mean, there was no no bigger problem than Los Angeles where our school was. I mean, yeah. It was unbelievable. Well, the connection is that, you know, they had government money that they were given out that was COVID related, you know, if you needed that. So there were some things that we were able to do. And, you know, in other words, we, we, we bought, I don't even know how many softballs because they were hitting the balls. And then at that time, early on, they're wiping them off. You know, practice would last like six hours, you know, like I said, well, that, we can't do that. Yeah. That's this. We, are, we bought, you know, hundreds of balls. That's that sort of thing. But the one thing that we were able to decide upon is we end up hiring um, for two years until COVID, until the money wasn't available, a clinical psychologist with sports psychology uh, certification. So, you know, it was fantastic. Now, the school also has, like every school, right, a counseling program. But, I mean, they only had, I think at the time, they only had about eight full-time counselors for 30,000 students. You can imagine how that worked out. Yeah. Um, The good news for us was that, you know, we did have one liaison from campus counseling, but, you know, for at least a year, there was nobody else on campus except the athletes. I mean, the athletes came first, you know, because no, there was, we, because we had such a small group and we were able to really focus on, how to keep these kids healthy. There's no way that you're going to check every single student coming into the room and all that. So we, you know, we were there for a year before anybody showed up. It seemed like. Right. But that, I think of all the things I've done in my career, it's probably the best administrative move I've ever made. Uh, I mean, so, and, the, and again, you know, using the term, the PS, the story, 
we had a pioneer, a guy by the name of Ross Flowers, who at the time was working with the Lakers, had been at UC Davis, and had worked with, uh, with the Olympic team. Unknowingly, I didn't know he was in Beijing when I was there. The other part is I coached Ross Flowers at UCLA. He was a, he was a hurdler for us. I had no idea. Uh, I mean, I, I knew who he was, but I didn't know I, that he was a psychologist. As soon as I found that out, I called him right away, really asking, hey, do you know anybody? But then when I started looking at his resume, like, holy cow, th this is the guy. In yeah. fact, um, partway through his hire with us, the Lakers pulled him away from us and took him into the bubble. He got himself a big ring and cigar at the end of that deal. <laughs> So uh, he was a good one. So you know, when you talk about what we did, um, let's step a little bit back when I first got in. And this is, even though it's at the forefront right now, there's no way that this should happen. So I sat down with a gal who's uh, from kinesiology, who's a sports psychology PhD, not a licensed clinical psychologist, but had her PhD in sports psychology. So we end up buying her out for 20 hours a year or 20 hours a year. Yeah. And uh, per week, per semester. And we sat down and I said, well, I know you're part of this thing. You know, I know you're, you've been helping out. I'm, I'm interested in what you're doing. You know, I've never really been around sports psychology. I've seen it everywhere, you know, but uh, talk to me about it. And so she explained, oh, this is what we do, you know, you know, imaging and talking to people, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. Right. Yeah. But then I said, then I said to her, and so do you guys offer any programs? Is it one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, we do some one-on-one, -on -one, but we also try to do some group stuff. And I said, oh, great. She goes, well, nah, really, you know, what, what, what happens is every fall we try to get everybody together. And, you know, of course it's not mandatory. And we, we tell the coaches, Hey, you know, we want to meet with your team. And, I said, oh, good. And she said, well, you know, the coaches didn't make it mandatory, so we had, at best, poor attendance, you know, because the coaches said, hey, you know, this is another thing you guys can go to, but you don't have to if you don't want to. Well, if you tell kids that, they're going to say, oh, heck with it then, right? Right. So I told her right then and there, I said, well, we're going to change that. She said, what do you mean? I said, it's now mandatory. We're going to do it mandatory. Fall mandatory check-in. She's like, wow, how are you going to do that? I said, I'm just going to tell everybody that's what we're doing. That's my job. That's what Mike Izzy, our athletic director, is going to allow me to do. Who would turn that away? You know, I mean, especially during some of this health crisis thing. So yeah. what they ended up doing was mandatory. Every team comes in, no coaches, right? Just the psychologists and them. Campus psychology, clinical, her on the sports side, coordinating all that with the director of sports medicine. So they end up, you know, having the first mandatory thing in my first whatever months. And they had a... a a, uh, an assessment to fill out. And through that assessment, it's a good thing they did that because it was the kind of assessment where you'd say, okay, we have somebody that needs help. But part of that was we have somebody in crisis right now. Yeah. And I think they ended up uh, walking, I think two people walking them. They had to have somebody with them, walk them up to campus because they needed it. They were in crisis and needed help immediately. Mm. So I wish it wasn't that way, but thank goodness, you know, we ended up yeah. doing that. And then we turned that Jeff into mandatory QPR training, which is suicide prevention right? for everybody, yeah. not just kids. So I just piled it on and thought, well, you got to do is read the paper. I mean, it's, you can say whatever you want about stressors and kids. and I, This is what's happening. You know, yeah. we got, we got to address this. So right. we did. And, and I, I, I think it's, you know, the best administrative move I've ever made. And thank goodness for Mike Gizzy co-signing that thing. And, uh, you know, I think the question was, who's, who, you know, how are they going to let this happen? And I, and I just said to myself, you think they want this on their hands? Finding out that they had a chance to do this and they didn't and something happened. Yeah. Anyway. So that's, that's how we got that. So I, I'm glad you asked me that because that doesn't get asked uh, often to me. And it makes, it reminds me, that you know how important those things are for for this reason you know if you talk to ross flowers or any sports psychologist you'll find out that he said you know most of the time not being able to throw the ball back to the pitcher or missing free throws or you can't kick the ball through the uprights usually 
is a clinical issue. It just shows itself up on, on the field of athletics. And I thought, wow, I didn't even think about that. So I'm glad we did it. Yeah, I mean, I've had a few, you know, not many, but a few come into my office over 30 some years, you know, and talk about suicide. And, uh, oh. you know, you're, you're happy they came to talk to you and then you got to get them to the right people, of course. Yeah. And then, you know, when I went and worked for uh, 2nd, 3rd Battalion for about seven months after I retired, you know, we had to go through, uh, I think it was, you know, like two, almost two full days of suicide education, suicide prevention education. And uh, because in the military, it's like some incredible number of people. If you consider all the veterans, current military people, it's like, you know, maybe 25 a day or something like that. I mean, it's, it's. I've heard the same thing. Yes, sir. Numbers. Yeah. Sad. Well, <clears throat> you can't prevent it, but it's amazing how, you know, I think when you and I were growing up, you would never mention it because you were scared to say it. And then yeah. come to find out the real way to do it is to ask somebody straight up. Are you thinking about killing yourself? Yeah. I would have thought, I would have never thought that uh, yeah, I'm so I, I was informed and educated and around some really good people, so I'm happy right. we did it. Well, Bob, I'm going to pursue this mission, and uh, I might get back with you because you've got a whole lot of insight, and I, you've had a tremendous career, and I, I've got a ton of respect for you and all you've accomplished in strength and conditioning. And uh, you know, I hope I see you sometime at the conferences uh, again. And I'm still going to try to be active and keep my certifications up for a little while. You should. Uh, People benefit from you. They, no, you've affected a lot of lives, Jeff. There's no reason to stop. I mean, the, the last chapter in our book isn't written yet, brother. I promise you that. I got you. I like that. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show, Bob. And hopefully we'll get to get together again. And, uh, and God bless. And uh, we'll see everybody next week on Absolute Empowerment with Jeff Connors. Thanks a lot. God bless you. You've been listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on the Sports Objective. Join us every Monday night for a new edition of the show. Listen to the show pretty much everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Sports OBJ on Twitter and TikTok, at the Sports Objective on Instagram. Like and follow our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. As always, we appreciate you listening to the show. And go Pirates! Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.